look, if you would please, in the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. And the scriptures that we're studying tonight are verses 13 through 21, which finish out the chapter, although we're not going to be able to finish uh, the chapter tonight as far as the message is concerned. But there's, it's hard to find a stopping place in there. So we just want to look at that and read the whole section again. Uh, starting at verse number 13, and it starts with how the Holy Spirit has perfected God's love in us. So if you look at uh, verse number 13, it says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love." We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. In the past couple of messages, we've spent most of our time going through verses 13 through 16, and those verses deal with the, with the presence of the Holy Spirit and how he causes us to understand the work of the Savior. Receiving Christ as Lord and Savior is a radical change in a person's life. And there's a necessary change that must take place when a person has received Christ because the Scripture teaches that God implants in us a new nature. And the new nature is evidenced by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now today there, there is a, just a, a great deal of discussion about what is the content of saving faith. What is real saving faith? And there's an ar- a lot of argument about that. Uh, really more argument in the past 40 or 50 years on what the content of saving faith actually is than there ever has been in the history of the church it seems. Um, before 40 or 50 years ago you would practically never find anyone who believed in a Christianity that didn't have some kind of evidence of faith that was shown in a Christian. That if a person claimed to be a Christian and there was no evidence of it there, then they just concluded that person can't possibly be a child of God. Richard Belcher wrote this. He said, If one were to suggest that the time would come when a group of evangelical Christians would be arguing for a salvation without repentance, without a change of behavior or lifestyle, without a real avowal of the lordship and authority of Christ, without perseverance, without discipleship, and a salvation that does not necessarily result in obedience and works, and with a regeneration which does not necessarily change one's lives, most believers of several decades ago would have felt such would be an absolute impossibility. But believe it or not, the hour has come. Now, the gospel never changes. And for the previous 1950 years of church history, we find consistency about what faith is. That faith is something that endures. Faith stands fast. 
And there was never a Christianity taught that made an allowance for a continual lifestyle of sin. Believers are called to come out of sin. Now, our our studies in the Sermon on the Mount and also in Matthew chapter 10 have shown us that point. Uh, Jesus shows us a gospel that is complete surrender to him. He demanded that his followers would lose their former lives, and, and he demanded they would follow very closely in his footsteps. And that doesn't mean that a believer will never stumble, that sometimes he won't sin, that he will fall, because we find many times in Scripture there are warnings about that very issue. And we have those warnings because we're not yet complete in our sanctification in this life. But the Scriptures do not teach that a child of God will turn from Christ and that he'll live without some burning in his breast to return to that commitment that he's made. Commitment to Christ, real faith, involves the surrender that we have to to Christ entirely. And yet we have a, a modern gospel that's really devoid of true repentance and surrender. So what we actually have today is Christianity without Christ. And that sounds kind of odd, but that's what we have, Christianity without Christ. Now we looked at that over the past couple of weeks under this heading, belief in Jesus. What does it really mean to believe in Jesus? And we learned that believing in him comprehends all the work that Jesus came to do. He is the Savior, which means that he saves us from something. There is something to be saved from. And we're saved from sin, we're saved from death, and we're saved from hell. And then the Savior continues to save us. He lives forever to save us, to make intercession to the Father for us. He continues to sanctify us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is what keeps us persevering in the faith. And so our faith continues because the Spirit continues to work in us. And then one day when Christ comes again, he will glorify us. He has that part of the work yet to do. And he is going to transport us into the presence of God forever. So the gospel itself has not changed. But the way that it's being taught has been changed. Now the scriptures do promise that God will complete the work in a believer. The Holy Spirit is always present in us. And and yet the absence of surrender in gospel presentations represents a Christianity where a person can have no evidence of the Spirit actually being there. So the issue here is, does saving faith include the willingness to surrender to Christ, which brings with it the power for us to live according to his Spirit? And that is actually the way it was taught for nearly 2,000 years of church history. And what we maintain is that through the tremendous, multifaceted work of the Savior in salvation and the work of the Father in making perfect provision for salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in, in convicting and reproving of sin. In, in essence, we're talking about the entire work of the triune God. All of that makes a salvation where it is impossible that it should not come to its stated purpose, which is conformity to the image of Christ. That is what real salvation is. So that's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's saving faith. It's not a work salvation, but it's a faith that always produces works. As James says in James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then we also looked at the proofs that we have to 
that show that we truly do understand God's love. And last week I gave you ten statements that were comparisons, and they were all about a change in attitude about God. Because when a person gets saved, he comes from an attitude of hostility towards God. Scripture very clearly says that we are the enemies of God before we come to Christ in faith. And when we do come to him, the attitude changes. And so I just gave you ten statements there. Compare your attitude, compare those statements to your life, and that will help you to know whether the love of God actually resides in you. So with a Christian, with a person who's truly saved, there's an attitude of affection for God and a great desire to serve him. So a real Christian is consumed with God. And the reason he is so consumed with God is because he understands the love that God had in giving us his unspeakable, unmatchable, unmatched gift, rather, of Jesus Christ as the offering for our sins. As was just prayed a few moments ago, what he did on the cross. The Christian understands that, and because of that, it draws us close to him, so they want to serve him. And if you don't feel that, then there's, there's real concern about whether you are truly a Christian if you don't feel that closeness and the desire to serve him. Well, we come to verse number 17, and we find another great benefit that flows out of spirit-led understanding of God's love. And tonight, we're going to spend our time talking about the second point of this message, and that is boldness in judgment. Boldness in judgment. Verse number 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. In verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, I know most of you, if not all of you, were present for the sermons on Sunday morning when I was preaching from Revelation 20, and the subject was the courtroom of the condemned. And I was speaking about the great white throne judgment of God, and this is when unrepentant sinners stand before God, and all of the deeds that they have done in their life are reviewed by God. And then God takes that record of what they've done, and those deeds are the determiner of the degrees of their punishment in hell. And the title of that sermon, or those series of sermons, made it very clear that God's courtroom contains only those people that are condemned. Those that are there are already condemned. Now, normally, we think of courtrooms as being neutral. And people that appear there are neither guilty nor innocent until a decision is made, until an examination of all the evidence is made. And then the evidence may prove that the person is innocent rather than guilty. And so we have an acquittal rather than condemnation. But God's courtroom is not like that. All that appear there are already condemned. And that helps us to understand scriptures like we read in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for of what? Of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Now, imagine for just a moment a Christian who claims to know Christ, and yet he continually lives in sin. Does he have a reason to look forward to the coming of Christ? I mean, if there is no proof of his Christianity, he has every reason to fear the coming judgment. That is just a natural conclusion from reading the Scriptures. But the person 
that has a changed life, and he knows that the Holy Spirit lives in him, and that Spirit continually urges him to holiness, and that's the way that he wants to live, then he has no reason to fear the coming judgment. And according to John, the Spirit manifests his presence in that person through the successful completion of three tests. And we know what those three tests are. Believing everything the Scriptures have to say about Christ, that's part of the evidence. Abiding in the commandments of Christ, obeying them, that is evidence. And then the chief one that he gives us is love for others. And passing those tests are the evidence for why we have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, we're going to look at this just a little bit more closely tonight as we consider why we have boldness rather than fear of judgment. Even though we know that God is the righteous judge and God will judge everything, why is it that we do not fear that judgment? Well, first of all, we'll look at it this way, that the natural fear is removed. The natural fear that man should have of God is removed. Now, the most logical component of end-time theology is the idea of judgment. In the last message that I preached on the, uh, the courtroom of the condemned, we spent our time talking about the logical reasons why we would believe in endless punishment. But I, I found this quote after I preached those messages. This is something that was said by M- James Montgomery Boyce, and I wish I had this available to me uh, when I preached that last message, because I certainly would have read it. But he said, in most systems of theology, the end events focus around three things the return of Christ, the resurrection, and the judgment. But neither the return of Christ nor the resurrection is logical. Jesus came once and was rejected. He was crucified. If he never came back, this would be logical. And no one, least of all ourselves, could blame him. Yet against logic, he is returning. The resurrection is not logical either. For even the Bible declares of our bodies, dust you are, and to dust you will return, Genesis 3:19. Logically, no one could expect more. But judgment? That is the most logical event the future holds for any man or woman. When you survey human history, you look at the human race down through all periods of time, you can't do that without coming to the conclusion that all civilizations that we know of and all people in all times believe that there is some kind of a judgment. And they may not know of what that judgment consists But they do know this, that their judgment depends on something that they do with their lives, something according to what happens in their lives. There is an innate sense in man of this judgment. This is why Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 when he says that the Gentiles who never even heard of Jehovah God still understand that there is a God. They know the difference between right and wrong, and they know that there are consequences for doing wrong. Now, here, then, is the amazing thing about the modern teachers of the gospel because the knowledge of what is innate in man is removed. They don't teach about hell, and they don't teach about judgment. Now, we have the proper explanation of those in the Scriptures. We have that subject in Scripture, but they don't include them. And so I'm going to make a statement that I hope doesn't surprise you at all, that the gospel that is preached today that does not include hell or judgment is actually more pagan than the pagans. Do you understand by what Paul said? It's more pagan than paganism, not to believe in hell or judgment. Now, from the natural viewpoint, we should fear judgment and Pure pagans seem to know more about judgment than many people who sit under quote-unquote gospel preaching. 
So people today think things are okay when they're not really okay, and they've not been told about the eternal consequences of their behavior. You know, sometimes Lauren will, Jared will bring Aiden over to the house, and, and I see him getting ready to do something that I know that he's going to get hurt. And so I say, Aiden, if you do that, you're going to get hurt. And he always says, I'm not going to get hurt. And that statement is always followed by... And crying and wailing because he just got hurt. Well, children do those things because they haven't learned yet the kinds of things to be afraid of. And that's why you don't turn them loose and let them go outside the house and head towards the street because they don't know that there's a speeding car coming down that could hit them and kill them instantly. They don't understand that yet. But as they get older and you teach them, they learn what to be afraid of. And so it becomes second nature that before you ever step off the curb, you look left and right to see if there's anybody coming. And even then, you're not sure you're going to get across safely because somebody could come around a corner going faster than they ought to go and they could run over you. Now, you multiply that millions of times over concerning the immortal soul. And you see yourself standing on the side of the street and you see that dreaded street in front of you that you absolutely cannot cross because of all the hazards that are there, you know that you can't get safely to the other side, how easily are you going to step off the curb into the street? You won't because you fear it. You fear it because you know you can't get across it without getting hurt. But what if you hear that there's someone who loves you enough that's able to take care of that problem of the fear that you have, and he can take you safely across that street, and you never have to worry about anything happening to you. Well, plug that in to what Christ has done for us when he promises us that he's going to carry us through the valley of the shadow of death, then what happens to us? The fear of death is then removed because then we know we're going to get safely to the other side because we have our faith, we have our trust, we have our reliance upon the one who promised to protect us. Now, Jonathan Edwards said that we're standing on the precipice of hell and we're ready to slide in at any moment unless God should do something to prevent it. And the Word of God says God has done something to prevent that. He loved us, and so he sent Christ into the world that we might live through him. Well, what is accomplished by that then? Well, according to our passage here, the perfect love that Christ has for us casts out fear. So love is incompatible with fear. And so if you still fear hell, even though you say that you believe, then you don't really have saving faith because that's what faith is. It's trust in, it's reliance upon again. It's reliance, it's full confidence. And the one who says that he's going to deliver you from judgment so you don't fear the coming of Christ. And that's why assurance of our salvation is so important. It is so important to have that touchstone in your life that says this is the evidence that I really have true faith in my heart. And what could be more convincing than to have the Holy Spirit work in you? And yet there are people that want to ground their assurance in other things. They want to ground their assurance in a prayer that they prayed or perhaps the aisle that they've walked, or a card that they've signed, or their assurance comes through a preacher who looked them in the eye and said, you're saved now, and you never need to worry about it again. Don't ever think about it again. Don't doubt it. And there is where they place their grounds for assurance. But you know you'll never find that even one time in all of Scripture, that that is the ground of your assurance. Now, the Bible does teach that we can ground assurance in the promises that God has made, 
But those promises are only recognized by an obedient faith. I mean, it's the one who acknowledges the truth of who Jesus is, Scripture concerning Christ, and the one who has that obedient faith and this particular thing, that the, re- the love of God is reproduced in that person and it's shown by that person's life. There is where we ground our assurance. It's always this way in Scripture. We're never told to ground our assurance in anything other than this. So you see that no matter what angle that you approach this from, it keeps adding up to the same thing. You have to pass the test in order to have assurance. Now, secondly, reverential fear is enhanced. It says perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love removes that fear of impending judgment. So we don't fear God as the one who's going to cast us into hell. In our scripture this past Sunday, Matthew 10, 28, it said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, the fear that Jesus is expounding on there is the fear of a person who will not make a commitment to Christ because he's too afraid of what will happen to his body. Now, Jesus said to the disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he'd spoken to them about persecution from every side. He said that you cannot hold back. You can't be afraid of what's going to happen to your physical body. And yet there were some who did. This is the very reason they wouldn't come to Christ and still don't in some places because they know the surrender and the sacrifice that goes with that and they're not ready for it. They don't want it. So the warning here is not to fear what people can do to your body, but to fear the one who has authority over both body and soul. It's an eternal authority, the one that leads an unbeliever into the everlasting fires of hell. So if you are a real believer and you know that you were headed for hell and God has removed the reason for your punishment, then, of course, you wouldn't have any fear. Now... The terrorizing fear is gone. Does this mean all fear is gone? No. The terrorizing fear is gone. John says fear has torment. See, the unbeliever is in complete bondage to that kind of terror. But the book of Hebrews tells us that faith in Christ removes us from that terrorizing fear. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in the second chapter. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, and of course we're speaking about Christ, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. And listen, verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So that kind of fear is replaced with reverential fear of God, not fear of torment, not a terrorizing fear, but a reverential fear of God. So no longer do you fear retribution, but you have reverence. And really, that is one of the scriptural teachings that's really just gone out the window with false presentations of the gospel. So how then is that reverence expressed? Well, you need to get ready for this, because when I get through, you may not realize just how irreverent that you may be. The answer to reverential fear is found in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, all of us know about submitting to God. You couldn't have got this far in 1 John with us without understanding we must submit ourselves to God. 
But John is getting to the point here in 1 John that full submission to God necessarily includes loving your brother. And the expression of love to your brother is found in submitting to him also. Now, I'm not going to speak on that particular part tonight. I'm saving that for next week. I don't have time to get into all of that now, but we're going to come back to this. What does it mean to submit to your brother? Well, it's a matter of respect for him. It's a matter of putting him before you. So just understand for the moment, this is part, submitting yourselves to one another is part of your reverential fear of God. You don't fear God because of judgment, but you still fear God because you respect his authority to command. And his command is found there in verse number 21, that we love one another. Now, thirdly, we have boldness in the day of judgment because of the realization of guilt removed. Now, have I ever told you that there's a doctrinal test that has to be passed for assurance? Anybody remember me ever speaking of that? If you raise your hand that you don't remember it, then we're going to put a dunce cap on you and sit you over there behind the curtain let you stare at the wall because we've been over and over this. There is... There's one, doctrine is important. There's one huge doctrine in Christianity that is so important that it becomes the basis of all New Testament teaching on salvation. It stretches all the way back into the Old Testament, and there are examples that are drawn from the Old Testament to illustrate it for us so that we understand it. You know what that doctrine is? The one that undergirds all of the New Testament? It's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, that's the doctrine that had to be recovered in the Reformation because without that, you never have a true Christian. And you can stand and applaud for Martin Luther, if you like, for what he did during the Reformation, but there were true churches all along that never lost that doctrine. It was known all along since the time of Christ that, that faith comes in Christ alone. Faith is by Christ alone. Justification is by faith alone. Now, thank the, thank the Lord that, that Martin Luther helped to break that out of the apostate church. And, uh, you know, that just sprung up on, on people there with a vengeance through the reformers. But don't they ever think that they found something new that anybody didn't, nobody knew about because that was there all along. So what's the scene at the Day of Judgment? Well, there's this great mass of humanity that stands before God, and all of them are justly condemned sinners. There are no innocent people there, as we've said. The record of their lives is perfectly kept. There aren't any arguments. There are no defense lawyers because they don't have anything to work with. And besides, the lawyers are all in the group anyway, so they're not going to be any help. So there's no defense here. All of them are guilty as charged. Now, in our study of judgment, I've made it clear to you that this is not a general judgment. In other words, this is not a judgment of both the saved and the lost. There are no saved people that will be at that judgment. And so God is not going to open the books, and you'll see there, he opens it up and he says, oh, I see some of you here have your names in the book of life, so you're excused, you go over there, and let me deal with all these other people. That's not the way it is, because there aren't any saved people at that judgment. Their judgment's already been taken care of. That was taken care of at the cross. And so they're not going to be there at this judgment. Now, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be confused about what I'm going to say next. Just suppose that you are at that judgment. And you look there at all the sinners that are around you, they're standing around, and you realize something. I'm just like them. That I've 
done many of the same things that they did. I'm guilty of the same crimes. Maybe I didn't do everything that they did, but certainly in kind, I've committed the same crimes that these people have committed. But because you know Christ, you're standing at that judgment with confidence because you know that when the books are open, there are no entries on any of its pages concerning your sins. And so you're standing there waiting for your name to be called because you know nothing will be found. And so you don't fear the calling of your name, the sound of your name, like others do. Their names were called, and their crimes were read, and and you watch them be cast into hell. And so person after person dreads hearing the sound of his name. Now, I don't know if God's going to call the names alphabetically. I don't know if he's going to call them by ages of history. I don't know if he's going to call them randomly. He didn't tell us how he was going to do that. But he's going to reveal all of those crimes And every person standing there who is guilty is going to dread having their name called. They know what comes next because their crimes are written in that book and they're going to be cast into hell. But you're there standing with confidence. And what you are doing is eagerly waiting for your name to be called. Because you know at that moment there are no crimes listed and God's going to say, you go into heaven. There's no guilt that sticks with you because Christ has taken all of that away by dying for you on the cross. He accepted your guilt and then you received his perfect righteousness. Remember all of that because that's what it means to be justified by faith. You didn't earn it. It was a gracious act of God. He opened up your eyes to this wonderful sacrifice that Christ made and you believed that he died for you. And so at that moment, you were clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and all of your sins were transferred to him. And so you're standing there with white robes of righteousness. That's what would happen to you if you appeared at the great white throne judgment. Now, because of that, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference if it is a general judgment. I mean, suppose we're all wrong about this, and it is a general judgment. Both saved and lost will appear there. It doesn't matter, because as a Christian... There are no crimes to be named. There is no guilt that can be established. There is no punishment that can be given because Christ took all of that away. And you stand before God boldly with no fear. God's perfect love in Christ cast out fear. Now, lastly for this evening, you have boldness in the day of judgment because you have received the nature of God. Now, let's notice the second part of verse number 17. It says, We may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, I'm going to look, we're going to look at that more next week. But you know what John's talking about there? He's talking more than just justification. He's also speaking of our sanctification. And here is another huge monumental failure in gospel preaching today, and that's when it divides justification and sanctification in the sense that we can be justified, or we are justified, but sanctification is optional. Now, these are two different doctrines, to be sure, but they they never stand alone. It's impossible to have a justified child of God that is not also sanctified. Now, I hope this this comes together for you because this is really the point that John has made all along. And this is why we keep reading it. There is no boldness for any person in the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment as it approaches, if that person does not persevere in the faith because it means that he's not sanctified. 
And it's impossible that we should not be sanctified because this verse that we just read says, as he is, so are we also in the world. And that means that God has implanted his nature into us, which produces no other result than this. And so if the general course of your life is away from God instead of drawing closer to him, then how could you ever extract any confidence from the manner of your life? We are not as he is in the world. So we deny the verse. Now you see there's a gradation of fear depending on how much you're like Christ. And I hope you understand that. It's not uncommon for a Christian to have doubts. People doubt their salvation. And there's a variety of reasons for doubt. Sin is a cause of doubt. And so it stands to reason that the more you sin, the more doubt that you have. And the more doubt that you have, the more reason that you have to fear. There was a person who came to me once and said, I'm having a problem overcoming sin. And he said, am I really saved? And so I, I asked him to look back on his life and see if there was any evidence in it that he had believed. Had he ever felt the presence of the Holy Spirit? Had he ever received chastisement for his sin? Did he or was he happy living in sin? Or was sin making him miserable? Well, the answer to the last question was apparent. He was miserable with sin and doubt. One of the things I told him was, well, if you're concerned enough to come to me and ask this question, then you have reason to believe that you're saved. But I would never stop with that. You shouldn't stop with that. You don't want to leave it there. Because if you have received God's nature in regeneration, you will strive to be like him. You won't give up that struggle. You'll realize that that struggle is with you every single day of your life. See, there's no logical reason for Christ's return. There's no logical reason for the resurrection. Thank God that he defies all human logic. His ways are far above our ways. We can't even find them out. The only logical doctrine that there is concerning the end times from our standpoint is the idea there is a judgment. So there's that inevitability of judgment. And either that's already happened to you at the cross or it will happen to you in eternity. Now, I can say to you without pride, not in a prideful way, I have confidence concerning the judgment. And I hope that you do too. And I have confidence because all of my hope, my trust, my reliance, my faith is in Jesus Christ that he took that judgment for me. And I hope that every one of you sitting here tonight can say, I believe the very same thing. I have no fear of dying. I have no fear of the judgment that's coming because I know Jesus Christ. And this is part of what John is talking about in this last part of the scripture, boldness in the day of judgment and why we can be bold in that time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to look in your word and how can we ever express how thankful that we are to know you as Savior. It's beyond all comprehension that you ever cared about us, that you loved us when we were so dead set against you, and let you, yet you came to us with a conquering love and overcoming love. You overcome every sin and failure in our lives. And Lord, you promised us that if we trust you, believe in you, we will be able to go home to be with you, and we'll cross that wide street that's impossible to cross by your help and yours alone. So Lord, help our people, help us to 
have the assurance that we need. May we look for that evidence in our lives and may we live, live like you would have us to in order that we might continually receive that confidence and know that our sanctification is in progress and, Lord, that we are being conformed to your image. This is what we desire most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.